Revelation 5, verses 1 through 6. And we read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you. I thank you for this night. I thank you for an opportunity for us to dive into your word, God. And I just pray tonight that we would be overwhelmed by you, God, that we would be amazed at unity of your word from start to finish, Lord, at your plan of salvation that you decreed from before time began, Lord, and your, and your work, Lord, to make it happen. So, Lord, we just bow ourselves to you tonight, Lord, by your word, work in each of our hearts, Lord, to see you more clearly and know you better. We love you, we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in verse 6, where we left off last week, and we're actually going to get no further than that, because there was a lot more here than I thought there was. And I actually have more tonight than I have any other week. So I'm going to try to speak slowly, but still get through it all. Uh, let's review first what we've seen already in this vision of John. Remember, from chapter 4 through the beginning of chapter 8 is one complete vision that reveals aspects of history between Christ's first coming and second coming. Just like we saw the letters of the seven churches did the same thing. And we saw John is brought to heaven in this vision, where he sees Yahweh on his throne in glory. And around the throne are the four creatures that represent Christ in his incarnation. They each have those eyes all around, which represent the incarnated Christ in his omniscient deity. One of the creatures looks like a man, which is Christ in his humanity. One is an eagle, which is Christ as God. One is a lion, which is Christ as king. And one is an ox, which is Christ as servant. And around the throne, there were 24 other thrones that seated the 24 elders. This is a representation of the elect of all time. Twelve of those 24 Elders represent the sons of Israel, which represents the Old Testament saints. And the other 12 are the apostles, which represent the New Testament saints. And we saw that the creatures and the elders in heaven never cease to worship him who sits on the throne with those cries of holy and worthy. And then we saw in the powerful and preserving right hand of God a scroll. And we saw the scroll represents the history of salvation. God's work and word provides salvation for his people and bring judgment for unbelievers. And we saw that the scroll points us to the unity of the prophetic word from the Old Testament through the New Testament. The word of God is about Christ, the only salvation for Old Testament and New Testament believers. We saw the scroll was sealed, and there was no mere human, none of those that John saw in heaven up until that point that could open the scroll and reveal God's salvation and put into effect God's salvation. We saw even Christ in his deity could not open the scroll to provide salvation. We saw that Christ in his incarnation could not open the scroll. Only Christ crucified and resurrected, the lamb as if it had been slain. Only he could open the scroll. And that's where we'll pick up. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. First, I love the fact that the position of the lamb is given here. We're told that he is among the elders. He is among the elect of all time. In other words, Christ is with us. 
And here he's symbolized by a lamb. And the symbolism of the lamb has very deep roots in the Bible. It's a symbol of one that takes away sin. We see at the very start of Jesus' ministry, when he begins his public ministry that John the Baptist predicted and pointed to, we see this. John chapter 1, verse 29. And the next day, he, meaning John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John's entire ministry was like the ministry of all the Old Testament prophets. It was a ministry that pointed to Christ. And here, John the Baptist literally gets to be the prophet that points to Christ. And when he does, he doesn't say, look, God in the flesh. He doesn't say, look, the Messiah is finally here. No, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it is the fact that Christ is the Lamb slain for his people that the Apostle Peter points to and tells us that that is exactly why we should live holy lives in the here and now. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, we read, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And the reason that John the Baptist and Peter, as we'll see in a minute, also the apostle Paul, all refer to Jesus as the lamb is because this idea of the lamb slain for the sins of God's people reaches way back into the history of redemption. Now remember, as we saw, the object of Old Testament prophecy is the same as that of New Testament prophecy. It is the person and work of Christ. And we see that perhaps nowhere more clearly than the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. We read this. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry grounds. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So we opened not his mouth. And notice here how it talks about God revealing himself. We talked about this last time, the unsealing of his word, the unsealing of the scroll. Only those to whom he chooses is the salvation revealed. And here we see it's only revealed through Christ, who was the suffering servant. We see he's referred to as the root. Remember, Isaiah predicted the king, the coming king would be the root of Jesse. We saw in Revelation 5.5, the lamb's referred to as the root of David. And notice, he says that there was no majesty. We esteemed him not. This is not Yahweh on his throne. This is Christ. This is Man, this is Christ as the ox, the servant coming to serve humanity. And notice that we, like scattered sheep, needed the lamb. See, we are sheep. He is the lamb. He is just like us. He had to become just like us to die for us. But 
His idea of the Lamb, of course, this, this idea goes back to the very calling of a particular people by God in the Old Testament. It was the Passover blood of the Lamb that saved the firstborn sons of all of Israel, the Exodus. God performed all those miracles of judgment in Egypt, and they served only to harden Pharaoh's heart so he could perform the final act of judgment that would be the death of all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt. And God tells Israel to prepare to be saved, and we read this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This is Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors will take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. See, it was the blood of the lamb. Only the blood of the lamb could save God's people from judgment. Indeed, it was the blood of a sacrificial lamb that made Israel God's people. This is how he took them out of their bondage in Egypt and brought them to dwell in the Holy Land in his very presence. And that salvation was just a shadow of Christ. It was a pointer to Christ himself and his salvation. As Paul told the Corinthian church about sin in their congregation, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And of course, after the Exodus... God gave Israel the law, which contained the ceremonial law, including the sacrifices of animals for sin. In Leviticus 1, verse 10, we read, If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And while we might be tempted to think that God did this to serve as a reminder of the Passover and the salvation he provided them, this was truly meant as a pointer forward to Christ, to the true sacrifice for sin. We read in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1, for since the law has, was, has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of a true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the writer of Hebrews concludes in verse 10, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, that is why only the Lamb of God slain is able to open the scroll that contains the salvation of God's people. And we're going to revisit this idea of Christ as the Lamb frequently in this study. Christ is referred to as the Lamb 33 times in the New Testament, and 29 of those references are in the book of Revelation. And the first one is in our verse today, Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. <laughs> and two weeks ago, we had a brief discussion during the question and answer time about the word used here for lamb, whether or not it had a special significance, this word being used. The word here in the Greek is the word arneon, which is used only once in the New Testament outside of the book of Revelation, where it's used to refer to Christ's flock or the church. John chapter 21, verse 15. We all know this scene, right? When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. It's the same word there. And again, we see the identification between Christ and his church. 
We are lambs, and he is the lamb. Now, the word is used three times in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Psalm 114, verse 4, we read, The mountains skip like rams, and the hills like lambs. Same word. Jeremiah, chapter 11, verse 19. But I was a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me to devise schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut them off for the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. And Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 45. Therefore, hear the plan the Lord has made against Babylon and the purposes that he has formed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the little ones of their flock, that little ones of their flock is the same word, shall be dragged away. Surely their foes shall be appalled at their fate. And while in all of these contexts, it would seem to be used to describe a very young sheep. A, a lamb would be a sheep of 12 months or younger. But later on in the book of Revelation, it's used a little differently. In Revelation 13, we read, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Perhaps lamb is not the best uh, word to use here, because the beast is described as having horns. Only mature rams have horns. So there's some flexibility with the word, particularly within the book of Revelation. All this to say, I don't think there's any special meaning behind the word used. But since the lamb is symbolic of the sacrifice of Christ, and the Passover lamb had to be a year old, and that is the primary usage of the word, I would think John is seeing a lamb that would be suitable for sacrifice according to God's law. Again, Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. All right, and we see again, we talked about this last time, the lamb as though it had been slain. The lamb had been slain, but now is alive. So it was as though it had been slain. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, he laid down his life, but he rose and he lives. We saw at the start of the book of Revelation, Christ said this of himself. He said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Revelation 1.18. And don't forget what we just saw in verse 5 a couple of weeks ago. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of a tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered, so we can open the scroll and its seven seals. Remember, John was weeping because no one could be found that could break the seals and open the scroll. And one of the elders comes to John and says, don't weep because there's one who can do it. And the description he gives of the one who can open the scroll is that he is the lion of a tribe of Judah, the root of David, and the conqueror. And after being given this description of the one worthy to open the scroll, John says... And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. See, the one with those marvelous descriptions is the lamb slain. Because Jesus is king. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah because he is the lamb that was slain. Jesus is the promised son of David because he was the lamb that was slain. Jesus is conqueror because he is the lamb that was slain. This is how our king won his victory by laying down his life as our true sacrifice. There's a little more here, because that he had been slain here is one word, and it's a perfect passive participle. We've seen this construction before. Now, it was a simple way to say someone was slain, that someone was killed. It doesn't use that word here. That would suffice to tell us what happened at the cross. That's not the word that's used here. If you remember, a perfect passive participle is used to describe an action that was done to someone, that's the passive, it was completed in the past, that's the perfect, it's perfected or completed. But when it's a participle, there's emphasis being placed on the continuing effects of that past action done to somebody. In other words, the lamb wasn't just slain as a matter of fact. Jesus didn't just die as a fact of history. 
No, he was slain to affect the rest of history. His sacrifice has ongoing effects forever. And this means not only that anyone who ever places their faith in Christ shares in the effects of, those, of that sacrifice, but we, as Christians, for the rest of our lives, we are affected by his sacrifice. Not only because we're forgiven again and again when we fall into sin, but we are changed day by day as those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And, and this would have been great encouragement to those that John was writing to immediately, the Christians of those seven churches. And it's meant to be a great encouragement to us. And this word for slain, outside the Bible, it means to slaughter, to violently slaughter. And it's used in the book of Revelation to describe what happened to Christ at the cross. But it's also used to describe what happens to the saints in the time between his first and second coming. In fact, the word is only used twice outside the book of Revelation, both in the same verse. And look how it's translated. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. John says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered, that's the word, his brother. Now, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And note that this word is translated murder. It's used to describe an unbeliever killing a believer at the very beginning of the world once sin had entered it. In other words, this violence against Christ has been happening in the form of violence against his people since the fall. And it will continue to, to, until Christ's return when he brings an end to sin once and for all. So the book of Revelation is teaching us two things about this violent slaying, about this murder of Jesus. First, it's telling us that Christ willingly laid down his life. He was obedient unto the Father. And he, the incarnate Christ, Yahweh God in the flesh, he turned himself over to be slaughtered by violence. He allowed his creation to murder him violently. And he did it for our sake. He did it to change everything forever. But the second thing is that we can and we should. We should expect to have to lay down our lives, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. Because the same kind of violence will be done to his people. In fact, that kind of violence is being done to his people right now, all around the world. Maybe not here. But we here, too, need to be willing to lay down our lives. We need to be willing to be violently slaughtered at the hands of the world rather than give up our testimony of him, rather than giving up our calling as Christians. And this is what John is telling the Christians of those seven churches, and this is what he's telling us. But there's even more revealed here about the Lamb. Again, Revelation 5, 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a Lamb standing, is it would have been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Right? This lamb didn't only look like it had been slain, but John here describes it as having seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. We see again that number seven, like the seven seals on the scroll in the hand of God. And like everything else in the book of Revelation, the number seven is symbolic. It is symbolic of completion or perfection. For example, we already talked about how the seven seals, once all seven were broken, would be a complete revelation of what's written in the scroll. So the question is, what are these sevens representing? What are the seven horns? Well, in the Bible, the horn, as in the horn of an animal, like the horn of a ram, is used as a metaphor for power or strength or might all over the place. It's the Hebrew word keren. It's the word that's used here in Genesis chapter 22, verse 13, where we read, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. 
and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So it's used literally in places in the Old Testament, but it's also used figuratively. It is the word used here as a metaphor for power. Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 25. Jeremiah says, the horn of Moab is cut off and his arm is broken, declares the Lord. Both the horn of the ram and the arm of a man, they are metaphors for power. Sometimes, in our English translations, they'll just abandon the metaphor altogether and take the word horn out and just substitute the word it stands for. Like in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 3. We read, he has cut down in his fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. It doesn't say all the might of Israel. It says all the horn of Israel. Other times it's translated as strength. Job chapter 16, verse 15. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. Job says that he actually laid his horn in the dust. This is what the horns on the altar represented. When God gave Moses the instructions for the altar, we read in Exodus 27, starting in verse 1, You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. The horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. And if we remember, we already saw that the tabernacle and the temple afterward were meant to represent God's physical presence on earth. And therefore, all the features, all the furnishings were meant to be earthly representations of heaven. And the horns on the altar represent the power of God in making a sacrifice effectual. And of course, this is a pointer. The altar itself was a pointer through God the Son coming to earth as God's effectual sacrifice for sin, as our sacrificial lamb, like we saw in Hebrews. And the word keren is translated in the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament, with the Greek word keras, which is used only once outside the book of Revelation. A lot of words only used in Revelation and sparsely elsewhere. And it's used to refer to salvation from Christ. We read this from John the Baptist's father. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It's talking about salvation power coming from God through the promised offspring of David, which as we've already seen is Christ. And Zechariah was really referring back to Psalm 132, Psalm 132, verse 17, where we read, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. This is power sprouting for the line of David. And here we're told it's his anointed. It's his Messiah. That's the word in Hebrew for anointed is Messiah. But there's more. Because outside of Zechariah's use of the word, it's only used in the book of Revelation. And the first usage is here. In chapter 5, verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So we can see here the word itself is being used the same way it is used throughout the whole Bible. It is being used as a metaphor for power. And the fact that the lamb has seven horns means that, as I say so very often on Sunday mornings, listen, he has all the power. This is showing us that Christ has complete power. He has perfect power. But wait, there's still more. Because a vision of a horn in apocalyptic literature is nothing new to Bible prophecy. The prophet Zechariah saw visions of horns. This is an Old Testament prophet, and we've already considered some of his visions. But look what we read. Zechariah chapter 1, starting in verse 18. 
Zechariah is describing a vision. And he says, and I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. All throughout, he's talking about the power. The horn represents the power of the nations, the four horns coming from the four corners of the earth. These are the nations that scattered Israel and Judah and put them into captivity. And here Zechariah is told that these horns came against God's people but now would be destroyed by God. So here in Revelation, when we see that the lamb has these horns, seven horns, complete power, it's meant to be a comfort to us. Because we can know that though the world will come against us because we're God's people, ultimately it is the conqueror the lamb who was slain, who will overcome and win our victory. Christ made us a promise. John chapter 16, verse 33. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. Not a good promise. But take heart. I have overcome the world, he says. Okay, he doesn't say we might have tribulation. He says we will. But he says he has overcome the world. Now it's widely held with the horns that John is seeing here. In our passage today, Revelation 5, 6, they're referenced back to a prophecy of Daniel. And this is one we've considered a bunch of times already, so why not do it again? Daniel 7, verses 17 to 14. Daniel says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and a great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man. All these horns have eyes for some reason. And a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and, and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw midnight visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All right, note first that in this vision, Yahweh sits on his throne. And the Son of Man is presented before him. And note the parallel between this and what we've seen in John's vision in Revelation. Here in Daniel, the Son of Man. He is the one presented before Yahweh, and he is made king, and he is victorious over the enemies of God. In Revelation, in John's vision, we saw that there was one sought who could open the seals, who could enact this salvation from God. And the Lamb is the one presented as the only one who could provide salvation by opening the seals, and he is described by the elder as the king and the conqueror. Now also notice in Daniel's vision, there's a beast. We'll see a lot of these in Revelation. The fourth beast of this vision who had ten horns. Then a little horn comes up and rips out three of the horns. So there were ten horns, three are ripped out, that leaves seven, and it's supposed to represent the little horns claim to power over even complete power. And this fourth beast in Daniel 
is a representation of Rome. The first beast was Babylon, second beast is Persia, third beast is Greece, fourth beast is Rome. And there are multiple Old Testament prophecies that lay out these kingdoms, and they always seem to end history. It always ends with the Roman Empire. Now, why would that be? Well, because national Israel ceased to be a people under the Roman Empire. That was the end for them. But in these visions, there is usually a future hope beyond that. Even here, we see that Rome is ruled by this little horn. And we'll see later in the book of Revelation, this is a reference to the world system, the new Roman Empire, so to speak. And in Old Testament prophecy, very often, there is a dual fulfillment to the predictions of these world powers. There are literal fulfillments in the kingdoms like Babylon and Rome, and there's an ultimate fulfillment in these, in the kingdoms of the world, in the world system. And we'll see in the book of Revelation, both Rome and Babylon are used to refer to the world system. Here in Daniel, the Rome beast is killed by God, and the Son of Man is given final dominion. Both Rome and the new Rome are defeated by Christ. And we'll see later in the book of Revelation, we'll see this beast with ten horns come back. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. John says, I saw a beast rising out of a sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous name on its heads. And what we're going to see is this beast is really, the reason it's described this way is because it's telling us this is under the control of Satan himself. Because we read a chapter earlier than that in Revelation 12, verse 3, John says that another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. This is Satan, we're told. A great red dragon with seven heads, heads and ten horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. So this is representing to us that the beast, the beast is a representative of Satan, which means the world, the current world system, is a representative of Satan. But we will see when we get there, Christ overcomes them all. And that's what we see here with the lamb with the seven horns. He has all the power. He is the conqueror with all the power. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. See, the king, the conqueror with the seven horns will win salvation for his people. And all of this would have been a great comfort to the original readers of the book of Revelation because it is showing that Christ both has and will overcome Rome. The literal Roman Empire was hotly persecuting God's people when his letter was written. The actual Roman Empire controlled a known world. And this is a promise that Jesus would destroy it. But it's also Rome as in the world system. The, the, the system like the Roman Empire that would always persecute God's people. And who is the one that could put our salvation into motion in space and time and finally defeat these enemies? Only the lamb slain with the seven horns that has all the true power that there is. But I want to consider one more pre-New Testament reference to horns that would have been very familiar to John's readers. And some people believe this is a reference that John is making here. It comes from the book of Enoch. Now, the book of Enoch was falsely attributed to Enoch from the book of Genesis. Um, it was actually written sometime between 300 and 200 BC. And it is a book about an apocalyptic vision. However, it was considered canonical by some, Jew, by some Jews. It is the book that Jude quotes when he says this. Jude, verses 14 and 15. When he says it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is a quote from the book of Enoch. The Bible actually quotes from this book. And this prophecy by Enoch that Jude talks about is a highly symbolic vision. And this is from Enoch chapter 90, 
Yes, chapter 90, starting in verse 6. Sorry about how small that is. But behold, lambs were born by those white sheep, and they began to open their eyes in the sea and cry to the sheep. Yea, they cried to them, but they did not hearken to what they said to them, but were exceedingly deaf, and their eyes were very exceedingly blinded. And I saw in the vision how ravens flew upon those lambs and took one of those lambs and dashed the sheep in pieces and devoured them. And I saw till horns grew upon those lambs, and the ravens cast down their horns. And I saw till, I saw till there spouted a great horn on one of those sheep, and their eyes were opened. And it looked at them and cried to the sheep, and the rams saw it and all ran to it. And notwithstanding all this, eagles and vultures and ravens and kites still kept tearing the sheep and swooping down upon them and devouring them. Still the sheep remained silent. But the rams lamented and cried out, and those ravens fought and battled with it and sought to lay low its horn, but they had no power over it. So we can see the symbolism here. Now, there's a lot of the same symbolism going on here that we see in the book of Revelation. The world here is represented by the eagles and the vultures and the ravens trying to destroy God's people. And then there's this lone sheep who we are told remains silent under the attack with a great whore, a horn who arises to be the deliverer of God's people. And there are many believe there is a tie-in between what John is seeing here and this prophecy of Enoch. And as an aside, the original readers of the book of Revelation would have probably made this connection. Remember, the, the only scriptures that the early Christians had was the Old Testament. Even 200 years ago in our country, most professing Christians knew their Bible that well, where they could pick up on what was being talked about by just a few details. And the book of Enoch, while not canonical, would have been very well known by John's original readers. The question is, how would they have understood it? Brief history. When the Maccabean Revolt, we discussed this already, I think, a couple of times, is when Israel revolted against the remnants of the Greek Empire. It took place in 167 BC. This prophecy became very popular in Israel, almost as propaganda, because the Jews said that the sheep with the great horn, which we are told looked at the sheep, meaning the horn had eyes like everywhere else, they believed this was a prediction of Judas Maccabeus, who led the revolt against Greece. However, Judas died in battle, and ultimately Israel was not freed from foreign control. So the Jews began to believe that, hey, this is a prediction of the still-to-come Messiah that would free us from foreign control. And this book, this prophecy, is a big reason why the Jews in Jesus' day were expecting a warrior Messiah to come and depose the, the foreign rulers and rule from Jerusalem. And so if this is being considered here, if this is being referenced in Revelation 5, 6, where we read, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, then this is another reference to the lamb as the Messiah, the king that will reign, the conqueror who will win victory, who will, in fact, as we'll see, come with the sword of his mouth against Rome, the world under the control of Satan, and will rule in Jerusalem, the true church of all time. And this rule through his church of all time is already happening. Because notice, the lamb doesn't just have seven horns, all the power, but it says he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. We've already seen. This letter, the book of Revelation, comes from John and from God, but it comes from the whole trinity. Remember back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, we see John to the seven churches that are in Asia. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And here, when we see seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, we see the seven eyes of the lamb are the seven spirits that are before the throne of Yahweh God. 
So it's talking about the same thing. And we see a close correlation between Father, Son, and Spirit. And we see this about the entire New Testament. When Christ tells the disciples that he was leaving them, but that he would send his Spirit, he was talking about what was coming. He was going to die, he was going to be resurrected, he was going to ascend, but send the Spirit. But he promised that through the Spirit, both God the Father and he, God the Son, would be with them. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. Jesus says to them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. So you see, the Spirit comes from both Jesus and the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He's talking about the whole trinity here is the spirit, all right? This is the indwelling spirit that provides the communion we have with father and son. It is by the presence of the spirit in us that Christ is present with us. So here, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. There are seven eyes that are the seven spirits of God and that is the Holy Spirit sent to all who believe in all the earth. And like we saw with the four beasts who had eyes all around, these seven eyes, again, in number seven meaning completeness or perfection, they represent the Holy Spirit. In other words, the finished work of Christ, the Lamb slain, who is now alive in heaven at the right hand of the Father, has revealed to us the Holy Spirit is omniscient God every bit as much as the Father and the Son. But there's more, because this reference to the seven eyes would point a first century Christian to the prophet Zechariah. Let's go back to the prophet Zechariah, his, his vision of Joshua the high priest. Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. But the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men... They are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its description, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. All right, so what's going on here? Well, Joshua is being accused by Satan. This is what Satan does. The filthy garments represent his sin. And God changes him out of his filthy garments and dresses him in new garments, in white garments, like we've seen in Revelation a few times. This is God taking away Joshua's sin and dressing him in his own righteousness. It's a symbol of salvation. 
And this salvation is based on the promise that God makes. He says he will bring his servant the branch, that is Christ. As we've seen in weeks past, the branch, the root, this is Christ. This is the promise of Christ. But he says he'll also set before Joshua a stone. And we've seen in other Old Testament prophecies how the stone destroys the kingdoms of the world and grows into the kingdom of God. And the stone here that is presented to Joshua as part of his salvation has seven eyes. And through the branch and the stone with the seven eyes, God will remove the iniquity of the land, which is a reference to salvation, what Jesus did at the cross in a single day. There's a prediction of the coming Christ and his atoning work on the cross, but there's more. Because the rock that establishes the kingdom of God that has seven eyes is the Holy Spirit. He establishes the kingdom of God now. He establishes the kingdom of God here in God's church now because he and Christ, the eyes and the rock who is the branch, they are with us. But there's more. We've already considered the prophecy of Zechariah 4 in part, but let's look at more to understand that it is a continuation of what we just saw in Zechariah 3. Okay, Zechariah 4, start, 4 starting in verse 1. And the angel who talked to me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and, one, and the other on its left. And I said to the angel, talk with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel talked with me, answered and said to me, do you know what, know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of his house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know what the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever is despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. There are a lot of similarities that we've seen already through the first few chapters of Revelation. And the similarities through what we're looking at today. Notice the mountain being made into a plain by the stone brought forth with shouts of grace. We've already seen the metaphor of the stone smashing the mountain. And the fact that the seven eyes on the stone represent the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth take us back to what we would have thought in the first century reading Revelation 5-6. When we read that the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. See, they would have understood this as a symbol of Christ's effectual sacrifice for sin. That though he died, he yet lives bodily in heaven, but that he is present with them. He's in heaven, but he's present with them by his spirit that is sent into all the earth, into every believer. Remember, the lamb is among his church in his vision, among the 24 elders. And he is among his church by his spirit. And the spirit... As we've seen over and over again in the Old Testament, the rock, the mountain, all that, the Spirit is now establishing the kingdom of God. He is now destroying the kingdom of this world every minute of every day through his church until Christ's return. And how does the Spirit do this? He does it through the church. And so we see another call to the original readers of this letter and to us to persevere in the face of worldly persecution, to hold fast to Christ and to our confession. How do we do that? By the Spirit of God that indwells each and every one of us. Because like I said at the outset, Christ is with us, and this is how he's with us. Amen? Amen.